2: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. I think everyone was delighted when we saw the first COVID vaccines being delivered. Light at the end of what has been a very long tunnel. Speaking personally, I could have done without the Churchillian bluster of the designation V-Day, but maybe that's a bit mean-spirited. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine was first out of the blocks in the UK, followed closely by the Oxford-AstraZeneca version. As Dr. Gillies O'Brien-Teer from the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine at the University of Cambridge points out, there are plus points to both vaccines. I'd like to Talk about the difference between efficacy on a clinical trial in a very controlled setting and effectiveness in stopping the pandemic. They're two different things. The Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine costs $3, it's very easy to transport, and it's got very good efficacy. Even the blended efficacy rate of 70%, that is an extremely good efficacy rate. So even if it's got a slightly lower efficacy rate in clinical trials, Doesn't mean that it's going to be less effective in containing the pandemic because it's easier to get around the world. We need to stop this pandemic in all parts of the world, not just the Western world. So the fact that it's cheaper and easier to transport might mean that in the real world, it's the more effective vaccine, if you can understand that slight paradox. That was Gillis O'Brien Teer speaking in a recent Naked Scientist podcast, Movement Science Devotion to Motion. The COVID vaccine rollout is our subject this week, including the logistical and ethical challenges it raises. And since we aren't parochial on Naked Reflections, we'll be considering the global rollout in the second half of this podcast. With me to discuss this pressing topic are Philip Clark, Professor of Health Economics and Director of the Health Economics Research Centre at the University of Oxford, and Gert Randhawa, Professor of Diversity in Public Health, battling the rain in the University of Bedfordshire, who's also Director of the Institute for Health Research. Welcome both. We heard about the low cost of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine in the clip. Could you clarify, Philip, what commitment AstraZeneca has made about distributing their vaccine and cost price?
3: Uh, I mean, my understanding is that uh, all of the sort of vaccine manufacturers are distributing them at relatively low cost, but obviously different vaccines cost different amounts to make and also, I suppose, have different conditions under which they're stored. And so, for example, With the Pfizer vaccine, it must be stored at a very low temperature, which, of course, also adds to the cost of distribution and making it available. But in general, I don't think the cost of each individual dose matters that much in the decisions governments make on how they would roll it out and how far they would roll it out within the UK or internationally.
2: Has this pandemic exposed the controversial issue about the cost of drugs, Philip, and vaccines to healthcare budgets around the world?
3: I suppose the issue obviously has been quite different here to the extent that normally development times are very long. In this case, there has been very rapid development. And I suppose it compared with the alternative, which is continuing to lock down, it does seem to me uh, sort of good value for money to actually now initiate a, a vaccine program without perhaps doing what would normally be done, a formal sort of economic evaluation. But it just makes sense. And Gurch, how should we be prioritising the rollout of the vaccine in the UK?
4: So firstly, I don't think we can see vaccine in isolation from the whole management of the pandemic. So there's three pillars to managing pandemics. Obviously, the first is around public protection. Obviously, second is around sort of test, trace and isolate. And then thirdly is the vaccination. And for me, all three I view in the lens of equity and what we've seen during the whole of the pandemic, in the UK at least, is really a sort of an amplification of the health inequalities. We really need to handle how we deal with these inequalities, both in terms of public protection, access to test, trace and isolate, making sure that people are offered adequate financial support, to undertake isolation if required. And then for me, if we are going to prioritise the vaccine, and obviously we need to, given the finite resource of vaccines, I would encourage us to think about risk stratification. And inevitably, when you think about risk stratification, there are still prioritisations you have to take. Um, So, for example, one could argue that given the impact of the pandemic, based on deprivation, based on ethnicity. You could use socioeconomic status, people who are in frontline jobs or people of uh, different ethnic groups as being higher priority. But I think you would have to then think very carefully how you would weave in those factors into sort of any algorithm you used to prioritise particular communities
2: Philip, you've been quite vocal on this, haven't you? What's your view in terms of the priority of the rollout of vaccines? Because at the moment it's, it's primarily by the frontline healthcare workers followed by the, the elderly.
3: Yes, and what's interesting is different governments are doing very different things. But in the UK we've gone with a simple programme of stratifying then by age, starting with the oldest age groups, uh, and then later on we'll add in people with condition that increase their sort of vulnerability. What we're not doing in the UK is vaccinating on the basis of occupation or occupational risk beyond being a health or social care worker. And there definitely are other countries who are, for example, vaccinating teachers who, of course, are exposing themselves to risk and may well be in those risk groups. For example, if currently if you're a 60-year-old healthcare worker, you would get the vaccine. If you're a 60-year-old teacher, you wouldn't. And I think that's a point for discussion. But also I think more generally... The thinking, I think, behind the UK vaccination strategy is to keep it very simple. You know how old you are. It's easy to find uh, who would be eligible and it's easy to verify age. Gertz, do you want to come back on that in the sense that there is, of course, the
2: argument of simplicity? We all know uh, our age, as Philip said. But at the same time, there are groups that clearly are being affected more than others, whether it's due to issues of social economics or factors of ethnicity. Should we be veering more towards those groups? So
4: I think in the UK, if our long term aim is to suppress the virus, we have got to start thinking about why is it that certain publics find it more difficult to access testing, to isolate when required to. Um, And we know that those compliance levels are really low. And unless we address that issue, we're never going to suppress this virus. So I think the government really do need to make some bold decisions, which obviously the benefit of hindsight had. they done this at the beginning, you know, and literally, you know, as other countries had, if we had just offered salary protection for all those members of the public who needed to isolate, we would have got a lot more people to undertake testing and to isolate because they wouldn't have then worried about how they're going to put food on the table and pay their bills. We could still do that, you know. That option is not off the table, and I would encourage you know any government across the world to think about that option because that will really help to reduce transmission rates. The same is true then for the vaccine. If we want to seriously minimise the risk of COVID and the associated health risks surely we would want to target those people who are most vulnerable to COVID. And that really does mean developing tailored messaging. But it also means developing a partnership approach with our communities. As I've said on a previous podcast with you before from our work with Auckland Donation, you can only uh, develop a partnership approach if you build trust with communities. You can only build trust with communities if you genuinely Enable and empower communities to start taking control of some of the messages, some of the messengers, so that they can start to build that dialogue and narrative within their own communities. And again, sadly, we've not seen that with COVID. We have sort of, if you like, fallen into the trap of trying to reinvent the wheel when we already had community assets who were really willing to uh, sort of take forward this conversation. And I I think we need to do that because until we build this trust, we're not going to get the uptake in terms of the testing, the isolation and then ultimately vaccine uptake.
2: Philip, do you agree it's a a matter of trust and the relationship with the government?
3: Yes, I do. From the UK government's perspective, I think the fact that they had the foresight to pre-purchase a lot of these vaccines means the choices the UK government's now going to make are a lot easier than some other governments. But where I am perhaps a bit critical is there hasn't been a public discussion about the sort of values of what we're trying to achieve here. And it seems, you know, I, I think the thinking behind the current rollout is to minimise the deaths. And, of course, you know, age is the biggest factor. Age is a very sensible factor to focus on. But, of course, as, uh, you know, has been point, pointed out, there are lots of other factors, both having other uh, comorbidities or other and other chronic, particularly chronic diseases, and also uh, uh, certain ethnic groups have been at high risk or people, you know, due to their occupation. And, the, and a very good example in the first wave were taxi drivers uh, who in London had a much higher rate uh, than uh, the sort of general populace, even higher rates than healthcare workers. And you've got to say in a confined space within a taxi, you would have to say there's real risk of transmission. So, you know, again, the question of why we wouldn't focus on these potential high-risk occupations, but also in circumstances where there could be a potential transmission, although perhaps I must stress there currently isn't the evidence with the vaccines of what effects they will have on transmission. I think it's something we need to rapidly study and to determine that in terms of a future sort of rolled-out strategy. You know, the government has committed to this age-based strategy. I suppose there is some uh, prospect of some adaption as we go along. Then there is the big question, of how you roll out below the age of 50. And I think coming into a discussion with the community about, for example, as uh, has been pointed out, protecting sort of vulnerable groups or groups that have been hard to reach. But also I think the question about targeting the vaccine at people who are putting themselves at risk through their occupation, uh, whether that be people who work on supermarket checkouts or taxi drivers or school teachers. And I think that is a discussion we should be having with the public now about what what we want to achieve. And that may be focusing purely on health. It could also be focusing on other factors, such as the key role someone's placing in their job and the risks they're taking in undertaking that job. So in
2: a way, what recommending, Philip, and I think Gertrude also, is a more adult conversation between government and wider society uh, to make sure that people actually comply because they agree with the position. You can never persuade everybody, of course, but a a sense of being taken seriously. Um, And a frustration is that the government aren't taking advantage of the networks, as you were saying, Gertrude, that are really in existence.
4: I think it's absolutely okay for someone to want to safely say, Why should I get tested? Why should I isolate? How am I going to pay my bills? Who's going to put food on the table? And this is the the important bit. The government then need to have a very mature response back. Rather than saying, we're going to fine you, we need to be able to say, well, actually, is there another way of not fining you, but addressing your substantive concerns about if there is going to be a financial penalty? And let's face it, if you are a taxi driver... If you need to isolate for two weeks, your firm is not going to pay your salary for those two weeks. So someone needs to think about how we address that. And and the irony is there are other governments across the world who have dealt with that. And it's the same with the vaccine. People should be able to say, I am worried and nervous about the vaccine. That is a natural human response. And then we should be able to talk people through their concerns and anxieties and address them. And I think that the safest way to do that is in trusted spaces.
2: You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Philip Clark and Gertrude Randawa. We're discussing the subject of the moment, the COVID vaccine rollout. Let's go global. Here's Oren Levine of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, How to Vaccinate a Planet.
0: In a lot of the parts of the developing world where outbreaks of measles and yellow fever and meningitis still occur, we have a lot of capacity in trying to establish with communities points where people go and get vaccinated en masse to be able to prevent that. In order to do that, though, we've got to have supplies, the kinds of things that you asked about, like syringes. And there's a strong, robust supply system for syringes, but we need to tell them in advance we're going to need more than we're we were using next year. The most important part, though, is going to be making sure that health workers feel comfortable, feel safe, feel protected going to deliver services and that communities trust that the healthcare workers that they're being served by are going to be safe and protect them and that the vaccine that they're getting has been rigorously evaluated and is the right vaccine for them. And so we're not only working the supplies of syringes and and healthcare workers, we've also got to work to prepare communities to be ready to receive the vaccine. And that is a big, big piece of work for us and, and needs to start urgently.
2: So we're broadening out the discussion and going international. How do we best handle the rollout of the vaccine around the world?
3: Philip? Well, I mean, this is a complex question and, of course, at at a national level, you know, there has been a prioritisation. At a global level, of course, the objective must be to vaccinate, you know, all or most of the adults on the planet to actually drive it to very low levels. The difficulty, of course, is who gets it first and, of course, what has tended to happen is countries have pre-purchased the vaccine. Now, one can argue there are advantages of that through pre-purchasing it I think it has probably speeded up the development and the fact it is quite remarkable that we've now got three vaccines within the space of effectively nine months and that's never happened before. So I think that's a very good thing. But of course, the question is, is it, what's the optimal strategy to use that vaccine? And it, of course, it may not be to actually have complete coverage or to stockpile once you've completely covered your population to maintain that vaccine. And of course, it must then... The best idea would be to distribute it to where there is the highest rates of disease in the world. And I think this is, uh, there have been some international agreements uh, through a sort of what's called a COVAX initiative, but that actually currently has relatively small quantities of, of uh, vaccines. And so the rollout will be slow. And so I think there really is going to be a challenge at an international level about how to make decisions to use, to scale up the manufacturing and to use it where it will as it were, do the most good, but also recognising that governments are going to have to satisfy their own populations as well as meet any international obligations.
2: You say where countries have the highest levels of COVID, but also there needs to be a structure, doesn't there, an infrastructure to be able to deliver the vaccines. Those two aren't always the same.
3: Uh, Absolutely, and clearly there are challenges with some vaccines more than others. I mean, clearly if you've got to keep a vaccine such as the uh, a Pfizer RNA vaccine at very cold temperatures. It's going to be very hard to deliver that in some parts of the world, and that is something where I think looking at an optimal mix of uh, vac of uh, vaccines and to ensure the cold chain and that infrastructure. And so, alongside the actual, I suppose, cost, there is also the infrastructure to, to deliver that quickly and uh, and. Uh, to look at, uh, I suppose, using evidence to roll it out. But in, in the same way, perhaps, as the discussion we were talking about at a national level, there needs to be real discussions with countries about how they would like to roll it out and what are their objectives. And then to take an example, recently I was looking at uh, uh, Chile and South America. They're not using age as a basis to, uh, unlike the UK, as a basis to get the vaccine, but initially looking at vulnerable groups and then are vaccinating teachers uh, and other people in service industries. So really, there are different strategies. And I think you, one's going to have to work with governments but to try to minimise the transmission of the virus. And of course, the benefit for everybody is that it enables us to start to open up airline travel and international movement.
2: So Gertch, what other countries are you familiar with, both in terms of strategy, but also about the specific challenges they have that the UK does not?
4: The obvious one I'll focus on is the, the country of my parents' origin, which is India. So I keep a close eye on that country for many reasons. So firstly, you know, uh, the biggest proportion of immigrant communities in the UK are from India. So in a, in a sense, the UK has a vested interest in India getting this right, given the trade and also personal connections that we have with that country. They have many challenges. I mean, firstly, there is just a scale because it's obviously one of the most populous countries in the world. But they also have issues around trust and mistrust. Um, it's a country that's had its fair share of scandals in terms of healthcare and, um, if you like, exploitation. The biggest issue, and I can say this from a personal point of view for India at the moment, is. Um, that they have been in the middle of one of the world's largest strikes, which in itself is interesting to have the world's largest strike where you've got mass protests during a pandemic and managing the risks of that are interesting. So, you know, they, the government have introduced their uh, farmer's bill and that's caused, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people to protest um, in India. You know, I've got family, myself, who are... Protesting as we speak, and people are sleeping overnight on roads. And you know, they are obviously exposing themselves to risk um, of COVID, but also risk to you know, cold weather, etc. So, the challenge for a country like India is how are they going to build trust with? communities who already feel disenfranchised disempowered and then while building trust get sort of scale and roll out and i think the only way a country like india is going to be able to do this is through a a series of public private partnerships because that's kind of how their healthcare is structured and their challenge is going to how do you mobilize those public private partnerships and at the same time mobilize public trust when, as I said, you know, at the moment, you know, over 100 million people are affected by their farming bill issue. So in a sense, they can't solve this health challenge without solving some of
2: their current political challenges. You've talked about strategy, okay, you've talked about bringing the community with you. I'm also intrigued to find out more about the practicality of that. So it's not just that you've got, I don't know, the population of 1.2 1.2 billion, is it, in India today? Something like that. And you have the local uh, or the national tensions, whether it's interreligious or uh, in, in terms of regional tensions, political tensions. But actually, you've got the practical difficulties within India itself. And I'm wondering how you overcome that in India, specifically, uh, rather than just talking, how do you practically overcome those challenges?
4: India has a really good track record in mass health interventions. So I personally have witnessed um, blood donation camps in the Punjab where my family are from, where they have literally in one day been able to get over 10,000 people to donate blood in one day. And the reason they're able to do that is it does go back to a tailored intervention, which is completely underpinned by trust. So what they do in these blood donation camps is so I'm from a Sikh family so our Sikh place of worship is called a Godwara. So essentially the Godwara uh, spiritual leaders our religious leaders. They are the people who champion and front the conversations about the need say for blood. And then they themselves give blood first and then other people then are either choose to or, or don't. But normally what happens is people then do want to, and they are able to mobilise communities very quickly.
3: Gerch, if I could ask a question, which is India's, I mean, one of the countries where uh, manufacturers have started saying they will make the vaccine available privately, uh, which is interesting. Some countries around the world have said they will allow a uh, private uh, sale, but it hasn't really gone on sale. I mean, it's an interesting question. Obviously, many drugs are available privately, but in this case, you could argue that, Covid vaccines, especially certainly in the initial phases of rollout, but having said that, uh, it, it could be an efficient way to distribute the vaccine if it's not diverting public supply. But what's your sort of attitude to the private sale in India?
4: So my my personal attitude to this is I look at everything from the lens of equity. So I am always very nervous when people start introducing a price to something because it then suggests that there won't be equity. Um, and it's the same is true in England, you know, we've seen that there are inequalities in that, you know, I'm lucky, I'm extremely fortunate, I recognise that, I've been able to work at home throughout this pandemic um, and I've not had to worry about paying bills or paying for food, etc., and there are other people who haven't. Um, So we've got economic inequalities in this country and these are much, much... Uh, Wider in India, and I think any introduction of uh, a price structure for the vaccine, I'm not convinced will actually um, benefit the people who are of the greatest need um, in India.
3: It's an interesting one because there hasn't been a lot of discussion in many countries, and again, a, a sort of a public discussion because, of course, if there's going to be a very active government policies to either ban a uh, the sale of a vaccine uh, or if it's going to allow it to have some regulation and particularly I think ensuring that it's co- it, any private uh, sector sale complements what's happening in, in uh, you know the uh, government rollout as it were and I suppose uh, you know one can argue this both ways as I said many drugs are available privately it can lead to rapid rollout if you've got issues with the with uh, distribution but of course it can be highly inequitable um, but I'm Very surprised currently there has been so little discussion of this in most countries about how we would, whether we allow a a private sale and under what conditions and how that would, as it were, complement any sort of government programs. We're coming towards the end, and I wonder
2: how worried you are about the anti-vax conspiracy theories and and whether that's something that really could um, put us all in danger. Is it greater here in the UK than other places, or what impact might it have?
3: One's got to say, what's the alternative? Clearly, if you're not vaccinated, you are exposed to risk, particularly, say, for example, older age groups and the vulnerable where the vaccine's currently being rolled out. And I suppose the other argument with the sort of anti-vaxxers is that, as economists would call it, there's a an externality. We all benefit from our, our, our other people being vaccinated and by vaccinating ourselves, we benefit the world. And I think that, that again, needs to be a discussion. I'm very much in favour of people making personal choices about their own healthcare when it comes to chronic diseases and, for example, uh, their determination to of treatments to, towards the end of life. But when it comes to infectious diseases, there are strong arguments about why we need to think about the world when we're making these decisions and not just ourselves.
2: And finally, when do you think our lives can return to something like normality? I like the pause. Uh,
3: (laughs) You know, there, there will be this initial rollout, but if we've got to vaccinate everyone in the world, that is going to take some time. I think in, many developed countries I would hope by the second half of next year Uh, but to actually return it may take a two or three years but the sooner we can uh, spend money to vaccinate the world the better off we will be.
2: Well that's something good to stop on thanks to my guests Philip Clark and Gert Randhawa. we'd like to hear from you at Naked Reflections let us know what you think of the show if you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, we have episodes on conflict resolution, grief, the American election, nudge theory, and many, many more. You can find them and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at NakedScientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests.